0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And today, we have another amazing episode for you. Today, I will be talking to Bill Sullivan, all right? He's the author of a book titled, Pleased to Meet Me. And this book is really interesting to me, and I love learning about this because basically, it's it's about our genes and how they influence us and our behaviors and everything like that and typically like books like this like on biology and things like that like i can get into neuroscience but like when it's about like genetics and stuff it's really hard to keep my attention but i absolutely love this book not only did bill write it in a way that's easily digestible for the average person even if you're not like huge into like genetics and all that kind of stuff but it's also pretty funny like bill's a funny guy uh but anyways Like, as many of you know, I'm in recovery from addiction and, you know, I'm really interested about the nature versus nurture conversation. Uh, I come from a family of addicts and alcoholics, but, like, each chapter of this book, Bill dives into different things. Like, what really uh, caught my attention was, like, his, his chapter on how genes influence, like, what types of foods we like right but then it goes into like personalities and so so many other things so I'm really glad that he took some time to come on the podcast but it's a really really great book and yeah he explains all this stuff a lot better than I ever could so anyways anyways uh, yeah make sure if you're not yet follow me over on uh, Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul I have a lot of cool stuff coming up so make sure you follow me over there and I will link uh, Bill's book down in the description below along with his social media so make sure sure you grab a copy of his book and go follow him over there because he's he's doing a lot of cool stuff too but anyways anyways without further ado here's my conversation with bill sullivan Hello and welcome to the podcast, Bill. I hope you're doing great today. Thank you so much for coming on, taking time out of your busy schedule to come talk to us about your awesome book. So I wanted to kick this thing off by getting your opinions on a major debate. This is something that I wrestle with all the time. So as someone who is more of a psychology guy than a biology guy, I wanna know where you personally stand on the nature versus nurture debate. And I have like a few questions within this question. So like percentage wise, which shapes us more, the nature or the nurture, right? The genes or how we're raised and uh, the events in our lives. And next, can you give like a brief explanation of epigenetics and what type of events can affect this? Uh, this is something that I became really interested in when I realized how it can influence, uh, you know, genes involved with addiction and all that. And then lastly, lastly for this this first whopper of a question. Whether it's nature or nurture, based on your research, how much can we actually change about our personalities and behaviors, or are they pretty much set in stone?
1: First of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. This is a terrific service that you're doing here to get science out to the public, and I wish you great success with it. Now, nature versus nurture, This is a great long-standing question in the sciences. What is more important, genes, which is what we mean by nature, or the environment, which is what we mean by nurture? But that question can't be answered in general terms. It depends on which trait is being discussed. For example, if someone has the mutation for sickle cell anemia or Huntington's disease, they will develop those conditions Regardless of their environment, but when it comes to more complicated traits like behavior or even height Nature and nurture cannot be separated. They're two sides of the same coin and the more we understand our nature The better we'll know how to nurture the science of epigenetics Shatters the dogma that one is more important than the other and it establishes how they operate together like a team
0: Ah, all right. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it depends on which trait we're kind of talking about. And that's, that's kind of what I'm learning. I've been doing a bunch of episodes of these podcasts, talking to a bunch of people like yourself, and I'm starting to learn that, that answers aren't nearly as, as simple and clear cut as I wish they were. But anyways, all right. So what is up with epigenetics?
1: Epigenetics means above or beyond the gene and refers not to changes in the DNA sequence, but reversible chemical modifications that take place on DNA or the proteins associated with DNA. Epigenetic changes to DNA can be caused by factors in a person's environment that can turn genes on, off, or anywhere in between. Factors in the environment that affect gene expression uh, epigenetically include diet, exercise, drugs, pollution, and even psychological events such as trauma or adverse childhood experiences. So different environments can tweak gene activity in different ways, which leads to a rather profound observation. There are multiple versions of you in your genome. If we were to clone you, that clone would have the exact same genes that you have, but it would not become the same person that you became. The analogy I use is that Genes are the piano keys, but the environment plays the song. The science of epigenetics has shed light on a long-running mystery about identical twins. Why do they sometimes change in appearance or behavior as they get older? They are exactly the same, gene for gene. And if that's true, then genetic determinism would argue that nothing about them should be different. But we sometimes see identical twins that are discordant for certain traits, like obesity. And this is to say that one of the twins is lean and the other is obese. The property brothers of home improvement fame are identical twins, but one is taller than the other and they have different interests. One likes to swing the hammer and the other likes to hammer out the business details. Here's the answer to the puzzle. When scientists analyze chromosomes of young three-year-old twins for a type of epigenetic mark called DNA methylation, they're virtually identical in each twin. But in 50-year-old twins, these epigenetic marks are very different. This means that their genes are identical, but which ones are active, and by how much, is very different. Unlike the genes themselves, the epigenetic modifications diverge based on differences in environment and experience
0: yeah, this whole topic of epigenetics just blows my mind. And the twin studies uh, in your book, you you talk a lot about, you know, these twin studies and everything uh, because i've I've read these studies about like, you know, twins and uh, these identical twins who have the same genes and they were separated at birth, and you see how their environment molded them and it could even influence like their their politics and stuff like that. It's absolutely bonkers. but i I personally became really interested in this subject because I had this question. I'm like, okay, Uh, you know, coming from an addiction background, I'm like, how are there people who have been able to drink normally, or even uh, take like pain medications and never have a problem, or benzodiazepines and never have a problem, right? But then there's some kind of trauma, right? And there's there's some behaviorism that you know affects it, like you know when, when you're using substances to cope. But then I learned about epigenetics and learned how a traumatic experience might actually you know influence this gene for addiction, and that, that that's crazy. And I'm probably way oversimplifying it. But, yeah, yeah, all these twin studies. Every time I I hear about them, I'm like, that is nuts. All right, so last part. Last part of this three-parter question. Um, How much can we actually change about ourselves?
1: The field of epigenetics is still in its infancy, so we have much more to learn about how environmental factors interplay with genes. It's tempting to say that personality and behavior are locked in because other traits certainly are. You can't think your way to better eyesight or a different hair color. There are some researchers who claim that personality is largely immutable for similar reasons. But others argue that personality and behavior are derived from a far more complicated series of gene networks and can also be influenced at the level of thought and contemplation. Even though it is admittedly built from genes, the brain's role as an additional regulator of behavior cannot be understated. It's also clear that for many people, a different environment can produce significant changes to personality and behavior, like the classic Eddie Murphy movie, Trading Places. Discoveries in epigenetics tell us that we may be prisoners of our genes, but there's room to move around the cage. You can consider your genes like a poker hand. You can't control the cards you're dealt, but you can control how you play the hand, and even bad hands can win the game.
0: Yeah. So, so fun fact, fun fact for uh, you and anybody else who doesn't know the Rewired Soul origin story. But uh, it was originally just called the Rewire. But uh, yeah, I I was really fascinated with just the the whole idea that that you can change right and not only did it help me with my addiction recovery but it helped me just become a better person a better son a better father a better friend you know a better boyfriend just a better member of society because I used to Be you know what I would call like a piece of garbage. I was a terrible, terrible person, but I was able to change. But one of the reasons it took me so long to change is because I thought I couldn't change, right? So then when I started learning about you know uh, uh, like neuroplasticity and uh, some of the work from like Carol Dweck with like uh, growth versus fixed mindset and all that stuff, I was like, oh my God, we can actually rewire our brain. So that's 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 why I my my name you know for you know my YouTube channel and the podcast is the rewired soul um because yeah like you said uh we're all you know we we get this hand that we're dealt but then you know it's like how do we deal with this hand how do we how do we play this hand how do we adjust this hand you know what i mean um so yeah so anybody listening like i i don't know where this this kind of myth came from that we're just like kind of set in stone but we can improve we can change and it's one of the reasons why i love reading so much too is because like Uh, uh, We all think that intelligence is fixed, and I don't even have enough time to go into intelligence, but... I I can learn as much as I want if I'm willing to put the effort into it. You know what I mean? And my brain's going to change. I'm going to learn new things and uh, remember new things and all sorts of stuff. But, yeah, yeah, anywho, that's that's all interesting. It's crazy. Um. So, so yeah, so uh, as I've been telling everybody, the entire book is fantastic because I'm, like, not even usually into the whole genes and biology thing. But what really hooked me in, like, the book, like, Early on was the second chapter, you have a chapter called Meet Your Tastes, and I've been alive for 36 years, I just had my 36th birthday, and I thought I was crazy, I thought I was absolutely out of my mind for thinking that cilantro tastes terrible, but you explain in the book how our genes can affect the foods that we like or dislike, so... Here's the question. I guess it's you know because I'm a father too, but my son my son has a broader uh, uh, range of foods than I do. But anyways, but for the audience uh, and people who haven't read your book yet, can you explain what super tasters are? And for those of us who might be super tasters, I know there's some tests you can do, but what should we do if we're trying to eat better? Like I'm trying to lose weight, eat healthier. I've been vegetarian for a while, but I don't like you know too many vegetables. So what, what should we do if we want to eat better, but we hate certain healthy foods? Like just using myself as an example, broccoli, like how, do, how do we, how do we manage that and eat better? I really appreciate
1: your generous appraisal of Please to meet me. And it's funny you bring up this example because it was one of the main reasons I wrote the book. I'm a super taster, which means I'm super sensitive to certain chemicals in food. All my life, I hated broccoli and other veggies. I can't even be in the same room when they're being cooked. I couldn't understand how so many people could stomach this vile weed as Newman from Seidfeld called it. So I wanted to know why I was so different than everyone else in this regard. Turns out there's a good explanation that vindicates me. It's not my fault that I have a distaste for broccoli. I have a genetic variation in a taste bud receptor that makes my tongue exquisitely sensitive to the bitter chemicals in cruciferous vegetables. I have the genetic test results to prove it. Most people have taste bud receptors that give these bitter chemicals a fist bump, but mine give it a bear hug, and that signals to my brain dude, this is poisonous. You better spit it out. This genetic mutation evolved as a safety mechanism in our ancestors to help keep a subset of the population safe in case the tribe started feasting on a new plant that would kill them. But you raise a good point because it comes at a cost. Many of these plants are very nutritious. Fortunately, there are plenty other types of vegetables super tasters can enjoy, and many can stomach the offending ones by adding seasoning or sauce?
0: Yeah, I think, I think, you know, as, as I listened to your response to that, I, I think, I think some of it's just like the stigma. Like I hate I hate being a grown adult and going somewhere and you know and they have like, oh hey, uh appetizers, here's you know, broccoli. Like you go over to someone's like whole little, little party or, you know, game night and they have like a plate of broccoli and then and some stuff. And it's like, no, I, I don't I don't like that. And and yeah, so I, so I don't know. I, I think the way you explained is really good. So everybody listening out there, all right, just be like, Hey, my taste buds. Give these things a bear hug, all right? It tells me that they're poisonous. Sorry, just the way I was born. That's what I'm, I'm guessing is the best way to do it. But yeah, it just seems embarrassing. Where I'm like an adult, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's certain certain uh, foods or vegetables I don't like. But like you said too, like like I'm I'm a vegetarian, and I could do a whole different episode on this. But I have found so so many things aside from vegetables that I just tried just because you know I became an adult. But I'm a vegetarian, and there's so many just delicious things out there and meat substitutes and all that but I this this isn't this isn't an episode about being vegetarian so I'll save that I'll save that for another time so uh so yeah one of the one of the other parts of the book I, I love is that you wrote you wrote this incredible chapter on addiction and and genetics and it really helped me to better understand um because as I mentioned earlier I come from a family and of addicts uh, my mom got sober when I was about 20 years old, and uh, I just celebrated nine years. Same day I turned 36, uh, I got sober back in 2012. Um, but yeah, before we discuss that that awesome chapter about addiction and genetics, I, I have one more food question. So, like, I, I don't know if it intertwines with like uh, uh, addiction or just mental health, and you know, people who do like painful, terrible things, but. Later in, in some other chapters, you also uh, talked about how there's people who, like, love spicy foods. And that's something that I recently found out about myself. And you, you mentioned, like, benign masochism and these genes that make us, like, enjoy spice. Or maybe it's, like, you know, even, even pain. So, so here, here's what I was wondering, all right? So I read somewhere. I can't remember where, I can't remember if it was like an article or a book or whatever, but I read somewhere that you get a little bit of a dopamine hit from like eating spicy foods, right? So I'm curious if it's common for addicts or even recovering addicts like myself to really like spicy food. Like, are there any links between maybe like the addiction gene and the spicy food gene? Or does it have more to do with, uh, you know, like I said, like a dopamine or like a thrill-seeking behaviors or anything like that? it's, It's just weird how those two things seem to like cross paths.
1: First, congratulations to you and your mom on your sobriety. Like the science behind addiction, The reasons why some people like spicy foods are surprisingly complex. There are genetic components, including thermoreceptor proteins that line the mouth and throat and respond to the chemicals in spicy foods, like capsaicin. These send heat signals to the brain, tells your brain that this is hot. Some people have less of these receptors or start to lose them as they get older which means they have a greater tolerance for spicy foods. So it's not unusual to see people enjoy spicy foods more as they get older. And part of your newfound love for them could simply be age. A recent study showed a connection between alcohol and spicy foods. They both bind to the same group of opioid receptors in the brain. So spicy food lovers have a likelihood to also have alcohol abuse problems. Another gene that may be involved is a dopamine receptor called DRD4. A mutation in this gene is linked to daredevil behavior, greater risk taking. This mutation can drive people towards all sorts of thrill seeking activities from snowboarding or starting a business to gambling or experimenting with drugs. It's an example where the environment can play a huge role in how a genetic variation manifests itself.
0: That That is nuts. And it's so funny because as we're talking about this and you're talking about, you know, uh, just, you know, a few different possibilities. I remember uh, when I was working for an addiction treatment center, um, our company actually owned... Uh, uh, a, a gene testing lab too and they would you know they would take in uh, tests from other places because they're actually they're trying to do tests to see you know what medications people will better react to so they actually you know work with other uh, healthcare providers and things like that but anyways I remember we went on a tour and we did a little cheek swab and I wonder if I could find that because as you talk I'm like I'm like I need to I need to go back through this or maybe get a genetic test and, like see which ones I have see if like you know there's there's this uh, you know DRD gene and you know I'm probably naming these things wrong but yeah it makes me makes me very curious like people do like the ancestry thing or like the 23andme like i'm just interested in this stuff i'm like okay how are my genes affecting some of the weird kooky things i do you know um but yeah 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 so so back to uh addiction and genetics and and thank you uh, about my mom and my uh sobriety um but yeah, like after getting sober, I wanted to learn as much as I could about addiction. And it, it really blew my mind when I learned about the genetic component. Um, like the opioid epidemic, it's, it's no secret, like this has been going on for you know at least two decades, right? And thousands of people die each year in the United States just from drug or alcohol related issues. So as a parent of a 12 year old, I'm constantly wondering, like, is this addiction gene going to affect him, you know? So in your opinion, do you think the addiction gene is something that, I don't know, like, should it be screened for when, uh, you know, people are young so, uh, you know, parents or even communities can better prepare? And the other thing that I'm curious about, too, like, are there any, you know, ethical concerns around testing for for these types of things i appreciate
1: this concern and i'm glad you raised the question it's important to clarify that there's no single gene for complex behaviors like addiction these traits involve hundreds perhaps thousands of genes and clearly have a significant environmental component remember the famous rat park experiment i described in the book researchers got rats hooked on morphine And then placed some into lonely cages with nothing to do and placed others into Rat Park where they had friends, toys, and nesting areas to start up a family. The morphine-addicted rats who went into Rat Park were cured of their addiction but not the ones placed into the boring isolating cages. People with the DRD4 mutation who are predisposed to be novelty seekers can find productive outlets or unhealthy ones. It depends on their environment. Screening for genes is an intriguing prospect. On the one hand, it might provide really useful knowledge that can save lives. Genes linked to high blood pressure, cancer, or obesity may prompt some people to make healthier choices in life. On the other hand, Genes associated with things like aggression, addiction, or depression may manifest themselves in different ways depending on their epigenetic regulation, which takes us back to context, the environment. Personally, I take the view that knowledge is power, but I can understand concerns about privacy and mistakes. Uh, These issues would need to be carefully addressed. I think everyone can agree that constructing healthier environments is something we should be doing regardless. Simple things like reducing pollution, eradicating poverty and hunger, eliminating heavy metals from water, making healthcare accessible to everyone, financing after-school programs, and so on. I mean, why would we not want to invest in the things that will make every citizen healthier, stronger, and smarter? What better way to improve your country than to improve the quality of life for each citizen.
0: Dang, Bill, I I could not agree more but uh, yeah I I don't know if any other parents are listening but (laughs) your answer it actually you know gives me a a little bit of peace of mind like I I still you know uh, have to deal with some anxieties that I get and things like that but you know when I look at my son and I I think about oh my god is the addiction gene going to get him you know and all that I think about you know thank goodness that I got sober back in 2012 Uh, you know he doesn't even remember like my, my mom got sober when I was 20 so you know I'm very like grateful that my son doesn't have to go through that like i'm i'm able to be there for him in a way that uh you know my parents weren't able to do the things for me and things like that just because you know my mom was struggling with her own alcoholism and things like that and you know as somebody who's like really big into mental health it's something that i've been talking with my son about since he was he was younger so you know whenever i get all up in my head i'm like listen chris you are doing the best that you can you got sober you know you talked to your kid about mental health you know what i mean like can i uh, uh shield him from any potential trauma in the future or bad experiences or anything like that no but you know, uh, even though, you know, you were talking about knowledge is power when it comes to like screening and testing and like knowing these things uh, and better access to healthcare. Like I believe, you know, knowledge is power uh, as well for all these other aspects is one of the reasons I love to read so much so I can teach my son. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I love so many books about, you know, cognitive psychology as well is to become a better thinker and better decision maker. So then I could take those skills and teach those to my son too. So when he inevitably does run into those situations, when, uh, uh, you know, he reaches like high school or even on college or whatever. And there's the, you know, the peer pressure or everybody's doing it and stuff. He can make better informed decisions, you know, and uh, he knows about my sobriety and everything like that. So it's been a very open conversation. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I just, uh, maybe I'll just, you know, put my eggs in the basket that his environment is pretty damn good. If I do say it so myself, um, so so, yeah, you had, a, you had a chapter there about, about relationships and G's and stuff like that. And I'm so glad that you did. So, so I don't know if you've ever heard about uh, this recent Netflix series. I think it was maybe adapted from a book. But anyways, it's called The One. So, basically, basically, what they did was it's a, this, this fictional company finds a way for you to find your soulmate purely based on your, your DNA, Right. So it's like this kind of like 23 and me thing. But it'll be like, oh, we found your perfect match. It is the one. It is the one person who is genetically wired to be your soulmate. Right. And yeah. So so after reading your chapter on relationships, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, this this stuff, because I remember just being all all crazy in my early 20s and teenage years. Like, oh, where's my soulmate? Where's the one? So once and for all, once and for all, Bill, I need you to tell us is the idea of a soulmate just one big old myth, all right? And, like, is there, is there anyone out there who is just genetically perfect for us? What, what does the science tell us about this subject?
1: The notion that you have a single soulmate is complete fantasy, and that's good news for two reasons. One, it means there's many people out there who could make you happy not just one two studies show that people who believe in soulmates expect too much from their partner and the self doubt that they continually experience about finding the one makes them perpetually stressed out and miserable it's interesting you raise the point about the role of genetics in matchmaking of course genes factor in to a degree we have a natural disinclination to mate with family members because our genes are too similar and this makes birth defects more likely. Another fascinating study showed that women may be able to size up a mate through smell. In the book, I describe a famous experiment that involved women ranking the smell of sweaty t-shirts worn by men. The closer their immune system genes were to the guys, the more repugnant she found his odor. That makes perfect evolutionary sense because your kids would be better off with diverse immune system genes. So genes seem to play a role in attraction. There's some truth to the saying about chemistry between people. But I wouldn't go so far as to claim that there's a genetically perfect mate. There are lots of people you could love. Successful relationships have more to do with being kind, empathetic, patient, and supportive. The concept that there's only one perfect person for you also ignores the fact that you and your partner are likely to change over time. There should be no shame in recognizing that people change and can fall out of love. Some might point out that most mammals are not monogamous and argue that it's not for everyone. Splitting up doesn't have to be a tragic big deal. It can be done with respect, civility, and grace.
0: Yeah, I think one of the reasons I, I find it so interesting, like, uh, uh, you're you're not you're not my therapist. I, I've already done my fair share of therapy, but I remember growing up and like I used to love, love rom-coms. Like, fun fact about Chris, I used to love rom-coms and there was this idea that you're just going to meet the perfect person and all that and it kind of skewed my vision of what relationships were supposed to be and there's this one and you know and and, and all of that and I I feel I feel that a lot was you know not only uh influenced from like you know my childhood but uh you know how how this stuff's depicted on tv and in movies and in books and things like that And as I got older, I saw how this was causing issues in relationships because you know a fight happens and, and you just start thinking oh maybe maybe you're not the one oh no am I wasting my time with the wrong person is the one out there somewhere and you know I've had people on here uh I had uh Brian Earp on here you know uh, a few weeks ago talking about love drugs and all that stuff and you know like you mentioned like you know uh, uh monogamy and all that stuff and then I also had um uh Michael Sherber on here and some other Really smart guys, uh, just talking about the sheer numbers and statistics of things, but anyways, what i 'm getting at is like the odds the odds of bumping into the right person, like I feel like our species just wouldn't even survive like if if this was true, if there was anything true about the one, like what if your one was across the planet you know th- thousands of years ago, even hundreds of years ago, when you had no way (laughs) of ever bumping into them, our species would die out. But yeah, I think it sets up unrealistic expectations for relationships and like you mentioned, like people change over time. And, you know, aside from like, you know, people change and sometimes, you know, relationships don't, don't work out. I think, you know, when we realize that whole one thing is a myth, you know, for me personally, like I've been with my my lovely girlfriend for, you know, uh, years now. It's the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. But but you also, you know, you put more effort in. Right. You're not just like, oh, oh Guess this isn't the one. <laughs> you know, I got to move on. Um, so thank you so much for answering that. Um, so finally, uh, one of the last questions I, I, I wanted to ask you um, with. Everything we've learned about how our genetics shape us, what are your thoughts on the whole idea of, quote unquote, designer babies? Like in, in your field, in your community, what are the conversations happening uh, around this subject? And what are some of the ethical issues that we should all be taking into consideration, right? Like if this ever goes to a vote and we're voting on it, you know, like what, what things should we be thinking about?
1: Designer Babies is
0: science fiction,
1: especially where we are right now with our current understanding of biology and behavior. I think a more realistic concern is repairing medical issues. We will soon have the technology to edit genes that give rise to certain diseases or disorders. Already, embryo screening for in vitro fertilization is reducing the number of children born with Down syndrome or Huntington's disease. CRISPR is a state-of-the-art gene editing system that may allow us to repair detrimental genes that would lead to birth defects such as blindness or deafness or certain childhood cancers. Where this gets tricky is the slippery slope from fixing legitimate medical conditions to editing genes believed to play a role in intelligence, strength, or longevity. Here is where things get more controversial. Current consensus in the research community is to ban genetic engineering of human beings. There are safety concerns. For example, gene editing tools like CRISPR have been reported to mess with genes that are not the target of the treatment. There are also concerns that we don't yet know enough about how genes work together in networks, so changing one may have unforeseen side effects. There could be trade-offs when tweaking genes associated with behavior. An example of this is savants. Some people with superpowers of the mind have significant social defects. Some people with better memory have an increased risk of depression because they have trouble forgetting adverse events. Some genes involved in appetite control also affect puberty. What if we fix novelty-seeking genes linked to addiction that then lead to a civilization where no one takes a risk or likes to explore. It's also worth considering the child's potential point of view. Consider this. Let's say that it becomes routine to fix a gene mutation for a medical condition, but the parents refuse gene editing for moral or religious reasons. Would that child then grow up to resent their parents for not fixing this gene before birth? Should we condemn a child to suffering or an early death when it could have been prevented? Perhaps the greater moral atrocity is allowing suffering when we have the power to stop it. There are no right or wrong answers to these questions, but there may be serious consequences if we don't proceed with caution.
0: Yeah, this is this is one of the reasons, uh, you bring up just so many interesting things, but this is one of the reasons I love reading books on like, philosophy, uh, specifically like moral philosophy and ethics and things, you know, uh, because uh, what, what do you do? there? There's these these offs. like you bring up just a great example of. If someone decides not to alter the genes of their child who might have some sort of defect that could, you know, hinder their life in some way with the child, you know, the child doesn't get a say in it. You know what I mean? And these are things like I I don't know if we have the answers to them. And that's what I love about philosophy. A lot of them don't have answers. But, you know, we keep asking these questions. And that's why I think it's important that we have these conversations so we're at least thinking these things through you know what I mean um yeah it's it's all really interesting how that works and and you bring up all these other things like these unforeseen uh consequences like editing out you know uh thrill-seeking behavior or addiction will will people stop taking risks like that's that's something we need to think of too so i'm i'm i guess i'm glad to hear that there's kind of a a a consensus in the community that we should not be (laughs) uh doing this at this point you know um but yeah i i i imagine i imagine in the future sometime maybe it's hundreds of years from now but this stuff you know as long as we're still in a democratic society some of this stuff um might come to some kind of vote or anything like that and and bill I lied to you. Okay. One last question. Just one final question. Uh, You touch on it a bit in your book. It's something that I'm just really new to and trying to learn about. But uh, as you know, I'm like big on mental health and I'm, I'm, I'm learning, trying to learn about gut health and you discuss some of this in the book. So... How, how big of a role does, you know, gut health play and, you know, is there anything we should be doing, not doing, looking out for, what, what are your thoughts around this or what's the current research say about this?
1: I'm glad you asked about that because most people are not aware that they have trillions of bacteria and other microbes living in their gut, about three pounds worth. Scientists knew for a long time that these bacteria help us digest certain foods. And make some vitamins, but we've recently learned that they do a whole lot more. Turns out these bacteria make the majority of our serotonin, a critical neurotransmitter that works in the brain to regulate our mood. The fact that bacteria are making neurotransmitters have prompted some scientists to refer to the gut as the second brain. In other words, we should start treating our gut bacteria like another organ, that we have to maintain for optimal health. Some striking studies back this up. For example, scientists can make germ-free mice that are born without any bacteria inside or on them. When scientists take intestinal bacteria from a thin person and put them into germ-free mice, the mice stay lean, but when they transplant intestinal bacteria from an obese person, the mice start to overeat And become obese. Similar results were found in the case of depression. Scientists can make mice, who are normally social and happy, show symptoms of depression by giving them intestinal bacteria from a depressed person. What all this suggests is that our gut bacteria are making biochemicals that can affect our behavior, including appetite and mood. There's also evidence They can make substances that regulate our immune system. These reports have prompted many researchers and physicians to talk about microbiome health. A key hypothesis that has emerged is that many of our health problems from depression to autoimmune disease, to irritable bowel syndrome, to autism may arise or become worse because of an unhealthy gut referring to having the wrong types of bacteria in our gut. In fact, microbiomes from people who live in industrialized societies and eat a whole lot of processed foods look vastly different than the microbiomes from hunter-gatherer societies. The microbiome of many people in Western civilizations shows an alarming decrease in diversity in the types of microbes that normally inhabit the gut. Studies show that diet and exercise can have significant positive effects on our microbiome. Laying off the processed foods and sodas full of ridiculous amounts of sugar, fat, and salt works wonders for gut health. In addition, increasing fiber intake has been shown to promote the growth of bacteria that help build an intestinal barrier to stop a dangerous condition called leaky gut. It is probably not a coincidence that many modern health problems, significant increases in depression, obesity, diabetes, allergies, and autoimmune diseases, all occurred shortly after the Industrial Revolution and the introduction of processed foods. These changes in our lifestyle and environment have thrown the microbiome into disarray, but the good news is that we can restore it by improving diet, getting more exercise, and cleaning up pollution and other toxins in the environment. If you take good care of your microbes, they'll take good care of you.
0: I love it, I love it. And it's something that I'm trying to be a lot more mindful of when it comes to diet and everything. I've been eating better this year, you know, exercising and all that stuff too, but I'm trying to just be more uh, conscientious of you know, what what I'm eating and what, you know, what what it's made out of and how processed it is and all that, because like you mentioned too, like like how much serotonin, like serotonin is like one of like the main <laughs> neurotransmitters, right? right? Like when it comes to our happiness and all that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's insane how much is like actually in our Gut. like that's crazy like we need to be mindful of that especially when it comes to our mental health and you know if if that's a good enough reason to you know uh try to clean up the environment and eat healthier and everything like hey there you go you know what i mean but anyways uh thank you so much bill for coming on i absolutely love the book so for everybody out there uh yeah, is there is there anything else uh, going on in your world that we should know about? Thanks again for having me on as a guest
1: for the podcast. I hope this has sparked some interest in your listeners and they'll want to learn more about the hidden biological forces shaping our personality and behavior. It will help you live a happier and healthier life. People can learn more about the book and read follow-up articles by visiting my website at www authorbillsullivan.com or follow me on twitter at wj sullivan
0: all right another gigantic thank you to bill sullivan for coming on i like i said i loved his book and if you found anything interesting in this like let me tell you we barely we barely scratched the surface of what bill wrote in his book pleased to meet me all right so i will link it down in the description below along with bill's website along with his twitter but but go check it out like like i said this actually this, his book helped me get interested in this topic, and I follow him on Twitter and he's recommended some other books. So now I'm kind of like you know, poking around those areas too. Like sometimes it just takes, sometimes it takes a great book like Bill's to just get you interested in a subject. You're like, huh, maybe this subject isn't, isn't so boring. You know what I mean? But anyways, like I said, check out the description down below, get the book. Follow Bill, check out his website, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And if you're following him on social media, like he's he's pretty active on there. All right, but anyways, thank you so much for listening. And down in the description below, again, make sure you're following me, Chris, on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I have so many cool things coming up. And oh my God, like I am talking to so many people great authors I can't even tell you like this morning uh, before editing this episode I had a call with an author that'll be coming up pretty soon and she is one of my favorite authors like it was it was amazing to talk to her and I have so many more people coming on too it's nuts so make sure you don't miss anything I have some other cool projects I'm working on so follow me over on social media and if you want to support the podcast in any way there's some other links down below there's, uh you can become a patron get access to some exclusive content uh, for those of you who don't know I write books they're mainly Mental health books They're over and available At my uh, website TheRewiredSoul.com And if you didn't know Every single Monday On TheRewiredSoul.com I release a weekly reading list I read anywhere from like Five to nine books On average a week So I do brief reviews And I put them all up Every single Monday At TheRewiredSoul.com uh, But lastly too uh, We we talked about you know addic- Addiction and mental health In this episode uh, Down in the description You'll also find an affiliate link For BetterHelp online therapy. Therapy is a huge, huge, huge benefit to our mental health. Uh, BetterHelp, it's affordable, you could do it from the comfort of your own home, and it's a service that I have personally used and love it, all right? So if, if you want to work with a licensed therapist, check out the affiliate link down below for BetterHelp online therapy all right so anywho anywho I hope you all enjoyed this episode don't forget to check out Bill's book and the rest of his stuff but I hope you all have a magnificent rest of your day and I'll talk to you next time